0: The Gist is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash the gist.
1: It's Thursday, May 21st, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We have news from the world of politics. A serious blow has been delivered to an American political institution. The blow has been delivered by Mike Huckabee. Yeah, that Mike Huckabee can deliver a blow to anything other than the candidacy of Mike Huckabee. And there are even those who think that he can't do that. That Mike Huckabee cannot tear asunder what God hath decreed that Mike Huckabee should, nay, needs to run for president. It's like a covenant candidacy. Anyway, Mike Huckabee writes an op-ed in the Des Moines Register explaining that he will not be taking part in the Iowa straw poll. The August event, if not August event, that doesn't really mean much but is still treated by the political media like the sports media treats the AFC championship games correlation to the Super Bowl. Anyway, Mike Huckabee huffed and puffed and blew the straw poll down, and then he visited the old Fox and Friends to say as much. Every candidate
2: ultimately has to decide how to use resources, and the goal is not to win a straw poll, which doesn't mean anything, and straw poll winners don't typically end up winning the caucuses.
1: My goal is winning the caucuses. So, Jeb Bush, who's much more of a serious candidate than the huckster, said Fooey to the straw poll earlier, but the Huckabee decision is being played as big. Huckabee did win Iowa in 2008, won the caucuses. This is a killing blow to a political tradition. Of course, another way to say this is an unreliable measure of opinion about a future event, one that actually has a negative correlation to the outcome of that future event, will no longer be paid attention to. Did the media decide this? No. The media would still very much like to gather round aims and announce the results like World Cup reporters announced the predictions of Paul the Octopus with a chuckle and a caveat. But yeah, they'd announce it. They announced Pat Robertson. They announced Barbara Bachman. They'd announce the upcoming results. So thank you, Mike Huckabee. The media content to dig its own grave with a knife and fork and a bale of hay, was a sucker for the straw poll, but now it just might die. And to that, I say, we all won the Iowa straw poll. In the spiel, I take you on a long and winding story that deals with just Kansas being mean to poor people, but winds up in a stat about wealth disparity in the races. But first, an expert storyteller and storytelling coach, Matt Dix, in another of our ongoing lessons that can sort of be called, How to be Interesting. From time to time, we're joined by the man I call the most interesting man in the world. His name is Matthew Dix. He's an elementary school teacher in Connecticut. He's the author of several novels. He's a 17-time Moth Story Slam champion. Just won another one. He also produces something called Speak Up. It's a Hartford-based storytelling organization. He's been coaching up one of our listeners into uh, telling a better story. Hello, Matt. How are you? How are you doing, Mike? So Matt, tell me what you've been working on with Frank and to remind listeners, he was the gist listener that we selected to flesh out a story Matt's been working with him and his story was basically about a, a precious moment with his autistic son.
0: Well, I told Frank, you know, he's got one of those classic stories that uh, when you build a story, a lot of times your story is sort of a day or an hour or even five minutes and what you do with those stories is you have to bring those moments into the greatest light possible. And so they typically end up broken into two parts. There's the first part, which is what I have Frank working on now, which is he's going to give us the context of the relationship of him and his son. And then if you listen to stories, you'll hear many of them, there's always like a one day. So the storyteller will talk for, an, for a minute or two minutes, and then at some point the context will be complete, and they'll shift into the actual moment that they've been wanting to tell you. And it's oftentimes, with Frank it is, it's going to be one day with his son, this thing happens. So hopefully we're building the front of his story so that we get a true sense of what he is like, what his son is like, and what their relationship is like before we experience that day that was important to him.
2: Hello, Frank Kennedy.
0: Hello, Frank. It's
1: Mike. I'm here with Matthew. How are you? Great. You? I'm well. How you doing, Hi, Frank? So, Matt, remind us of what the homework was.
0: So I had Frank working on developing a series of anecdotes about him and his son and the relationship that they have so that we can bring some context to his story so that once we experience that day with him, we sort of have greater clarity in terms of what he's going to be telling us.
2: And what you
1: take from that, Frank?
2: Well, I jotted down a bunch of uh, recollections of poignant times that my son and I had, some Pretty routine and some um, out of the ordinary.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So what we do is, when I'm building a story, I'll often make a giant list of anecdotes and moments that I can reflect upon. And then I'm going to try to choose three, because three is always the right number. And I play with them incessantly. I try different combinations of them. I try different orders of them. Ideally, I'm looking for one that's going to sort of talk about me mostly. One that's going to talk about the other person, if I'm interacting with another person, in this case, Frank, your son. And then the third one, I'm always hoping it's going to be funny Um, or quirky or something so unusual that it'll bring a smile to people so that as I shift into the actual part of the story, I've got some faith with them. I've bought that idea that I know what I'm doing because I can make you laugh. Does that make sense? It does. I hope I can deliver. (laughs) (laughs) And then what happens is I think the problem... When I'm working with people, the thing that I'm always sort of disappointed in them is they find three and then they're done. And I really do, when I'm working on my stories, I might come up with 25 or 30 ideas, and then it's just a matter of experimenting, saying them out loud taking the order. I mean, the order is so important. If I listen to storytellers, I'm often critical of the way that that they always want to put the funny thing first instead of the funny thing last, and they uh, don't build the drama in their list and things like that. So playing with that order and playing with the choices that you're going to be making is really important, I think. I understand.
1: Yeah, so do you have an inkling of where you might start with uh, some of this?
2: One of the ideas was his cousin, who's only a couple weeks different in age, often visits and... He's a typical kid, and that's what we call non-autistic kids in our world, is just verbose with language, you know, come up to me, and even though he knows me, I'm still Emily, but I'm not, I'm a stranger, but he just goes on and on about his day and asks me questions and jumps on my lap and has all the social skills that at some point I notice my son doesn't have, and... It happens at other times, but particularly when my, uh, little nephew David comes, he, he, uh, brings home the deficits that my son has. And sometimes people say things to our family like, it must be, must be wonderful that yours is so quiet. Oh. It's well meaning, but it, it definitely, uh, it's something we don't respond to except my wife and I in private say, it was a horrible
1: thing, they said. Did you hear what Matt and I both from the gut said? Oh, I think that means
2: you're on something with that. Yeah, that's sure.
1: great.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not great, but it's great. <laughs> you know, often, oftentimes the terrible things that happen to us, I'm, off, I'm often tell, telling storytellers, I'm so glad that happened to you. It's going to play so well on stage.
2: <laughs> I, I, I understand the context.
0: Yeah, it also is perfect because it's going to reach parents. You know, that idea that we're always comparing our kids to other kids and hoping that they're at least average, if not, doing better. And so, you know, it's, that's going to hit people in terms of things that they do already.
2: Another story was about we we took a trip up uh, in to New York, and then we went over to Massachusetts. And we didn't quite go through the itinerary with our son. We stayed in a hotel in in, in New York. And uh we drove around, and we looked at some sights and The next day we stopped at a hotel in Massachusetts, and he was heartbroken. he expected us to stay at the same hotel and he he was He was heartbroken to the point that he was racking and sobbing and crying, and his body was shuddering you know not days in, not days in I want super eight super eight that's probably the only time that's ever been we, said. <laughs> it may have been he was inconsolable and I had to grab him wrap my arms around him and hold him to the bed he just was wrecked in pain because his day didn't go as he expected and those type of episodes happen a lot where he'll erupt and despair, and we don't know why. It took us a while to figure out maybe why it was, because he didn't articulate it, first of all. he's also... One morning, we took him to the... Well, actually, his first morning in kindergarten, we took him to the bus, and he was very excited about riding the bus, and the bus pulled up, bus number 105, and he yelled, 23! 23! And I had no idea... What he meant by 23, but he kept saying 23, 23. And then the driver leaned out the window, and I realized that he recognized the bus driver, or or at least he thought he did. The bus driver looked like Benjamin Harrison, our 23rd president. He had been playing with an app about U.S. presidents that week. So he thought president of the united states was driving in the school
1: are you saying the driver of your school bus was a dour man with a snowy white beard
2: <laughs> he had a snowy white beard he wasn't that dour but, uh, and he had a lot fewer electoral votes but he was a uh, you know, a wonderful a wonderful driver who uh, did resemble Benjamin Harris. Well, who
1: doesn't? Everyone gets mistaken for Benjamin. Either Benjamin Harrison or Chester <laughs> A. Arthur.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, Thank- Chester <laughs> A. Arthur has that magical look, too. You know what? D-
0: don't feed into Pesca's ability to identify the appearance of obscure U.S. presidents in any way. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, he,
2: he, he, Calvin, and I could probably spend some time together on that.
0: <laughs> so, Frank, one of the things I'm hearing from these, they're great. Surprise is always important in a story, if you can include it. So, Uh, As you go forward, one of the things I'm thinking about is not revealing that your son is autistic initially will be interesting, I think, in your story, because you can create some cognitive dissonance with one of these stories in the beginning. So if you just open up with either, you know, my son is calling 23 and you got to figure out why, and then you reveal that he's autistic before you sort of move on with your other anecdotes, I think that'll be a really effective opening. And you could probably do it with any of the things you've just talked about. You'll probably want to find one that's sort of short and quippy and will make your audience wonder, yeah, what the hell is 23? So that when the reveal happens, they can have that aha moment like like I just did and like Mike just did.
1: So what you're saying is you start off by saying, all right, let me tell you about the first time I took my kid to the bus stop and like a lot of parents, maybe a few of those examples, like a lot of parents, I prepared them like a lot of parents. I was worried. And then this starts happening 23. And then you leave that there and say, all right, so let me explain a couple things about Calvin. And then you go back and then and then you fill it in. You know, he's autistic. Maybe you tell the days in anecdote and then you bring it back up and say, OK, so here here's this kid. He's yelling 23. And then I figure out why something like that.
0: Yeah, well done.
1: That could work, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that could work. Tell your story in the present tense as you're practicing it. Because if you're telling it in the past tense as you practice, it's almost impossible to then shift to the present tense. And the present tense is always a better tense to tell your story in. Noted.
1: All right, so what else do we leave Frank with, or do, what else do we draw out of Frank in this session, Matt?
0: All right, so I want Frank to put together those anecdotes in the front of his story. And then he's going to hit that moment where he says, one day. And that's going to be the day he's described to us already about with Calvin. The key in that moment, and this is what I want you to work on next, Frank, is you're going to have to build some suspense and build some uh, drama in that day with Calvin. Because the way you tell it the first time, you get there very quickly. You sort of got him in the backseat. You're trying to figure out what he's saying. And then, bang, you figure it out. So you're going to want to slow the action down. You want to give us some internal, dia- some internal dialogue, like let us know what you're thinking. Uh, do things like the predictions that you're making in that snap moment. You want to stretch them out and let us know what those predictions were. So he's saying this number. What could this be? Uh, what have you guessed in the past that it could be? You're just going to want to make sure that the meat of your story is that second half of the story. So you're going to want to build that out.
2: One idea is that if I come up with a good story of Calvin scripting, repeating something he saw on television. One thing he did script a lot was uh, the Subway sandwich jingle song, $5 foot long. And when he said five, 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 that was one of the thoughts that did go through my head that he wanted to go to Subway. Yeah, that's great. Stuff like that will play really well.
0: Yeah, perfect.
1: And I have to say, just um as someone who is unfamiliar with the language, you're talking about scripting, I learned something. I didn't I, I know that autistic people do that. I didn't know that there was a word for that. So that alone as an audience member or future audience member, I got something out of that.
2: Yeah, I've learned lots of language and acronyms that I never thought I'd learn either. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Mike's right though. If you add some if we walk away knowing something we didn't know, the story has more weight and it hangs with us longer than it would have if it um if it didn't have that stuff, so I think adding that in is great.
1: Thanks. All right, Frank Kennedy, he's uh doing his homework. This is going to be a great story someday. Thank you, Frank.
2: Thank you, Mike. Thank you, coach. <laughs> All right. (laughs) Thanks, Frank.
1: All right. Matthew Dix, most interesting man in the world. He's helping coach up our storyteller. And he runs Speak Up, a Hartford-based storytelling organization. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you, Mike. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spend for work and what you spend on yourself. And you deserve it. Take a me day. In fact, take two. And in the second one, try QuickBooks Self-Employed because it helps you take the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, which is to say all the time, you know how much money to set aside for the government and how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash the gist. And now the spiel, The Case of the Stingy Jayhawk. There's a notion in the world of journalism, my world, let's call it non-fiction communication, that people tell a story, that a statistic is a poor substitute for the personal, Our species is fascinated with our species. And empathy, identification, they're key ways to get a point across. I'll acknowledge all that, but you know what? Sometimes a statistic is really, really powerful. So I wanna tell you this statistic, but first I'm going to tell you about how I got to this statistic. So a month ago, Kansas passes a law signed by the governor, Sam Brown, back. It severely limits the buying power of Kansans who receive welfare. So here's what you can't spend your welfare on can't spend it on liquor, can't spend it on tattoos, can't spend it on strip clubs, or as I call it, Thursday, hi But you also, if you get welfare, can't use it in movie theaters, can't use it at sporting events, can't use it at swimming pools. Swimming pools? Yeah, because swimming, that is not at all a good exercise for poor people. Maybe the lake. Maybe the lake would be better for them. Anyway, you can't use it to buy lingerie. Underwear, yeah, but not lingerie. What is the difference between underwear and lingerie? It's, it's coverage, right? But let's acknowledge there is a huge area between the thong and the granny panty. And some Kansan in the state's Department of Human Services is now wielding the state's underwear calipers, learning about that difference. But what is worse Or I guess if you're really suspicious of poor people, what is much better is how Kansans on welfare can now access their money. See, this one Kansas legislator laid it out. Her name is Karen Tyson. She said that beneficiaries were using their cards, quote, there was a hundred two dollar withdrawal from a person in Colorado at a Rockies baseball game. We don't know what they spent it on at the game. We do know. They spent it at an ATM at the Rockies facility. I mean, how dare someone travel to the neighboring state to watch a baseball game? I mean, a baseball ticket alone costs, actually, I looked it up, tickets to the Monday game, the Rockies against the Dodgers, start at $5. But we don't want them traveling from Kansas to Colorado, which share a fairly large border and can be gotten to by car in less than three hours. A Kansas watchdog group highlighted another withdrawal. This is a big problem. Someone withdrew $83 at a Renaissance fair. Wild ren fair spending could be ale, a cask of ale, could be any number of items from a smith, a tanner, an artisan. By the way, an ATM at a ren fair, real authentic ren fair. But oh, by the way, you know, yeah, I'm getting to the stat. Don't worry, I'm getting to the stat. All this stuff I said, that's not even the crazy thing. The crazy thing is how the people can now withdraw their money. They they can't have you taking eighty three dollars at a pop at a ren fair or hundred three dollars at a Rockies game. Limit $25 a withdrawal. Couple problems with this. You've been to an ATM. Do you get cash in a $5 increment? You do not. Also, specific to this program, to use the card costs a dollar at all ATMs. Isn't that great? When you can only take out $25, really $20. And after a couple of withdrawals, they start charging you $0.40 a withdrawal. This parsimony may actually get Kansas in trouble because Section 402 of the Social Security Act requires states to guarantee welfare recipients quote, adequate access to their benefits, quote, access to using or withdrawing assistance with minimum fees or charges. So the $25 with all the extra charges on top of that, that might run afoul of Social Security. Here comes the stat. So as I was researching all of this, they fleshed out the high price of being poor, which I knew about, and of course, People on welfare get their cash and they need cash. They get them in establishments in their neighborhoods with ATMs. And guess what? Liquor stores often have ATMs and they need cash, specifically cash because many people on welfare, most people, the vast majority of people on welfare do not have checking or savings accounts. And here's the stat. So vast majority do not have checking or savings accounts. This is called unbanked. The racial stats on who is unbanked in America were shocking to me. White non-black, non-Hispanic, white people, 36 of white people are unbanked. They have no checking account, they have no savings account. 20.6% of black people are unbanked. Absolutely no checking account, no savings account. So then you look at fully banked. There's an in-between that you may have one, that you may be able to have access of some financial services. What about fully banked? You have your checking, you have your savings, you can use the bank. White people, 75%, the vast majority are fully banked. Black people, 40%. The minority of black people in this country have a checking and savings account. So there's always this talk that is class, not race. I sometimes buy into this talk. That talk's not always wrong. But race is class so often, and class is access. It's not just having wealth, it's access to the mechanisms of acquiring and keeping wealth. It's access to rising up. A class or two. It is so, so difficult to escape from poverty, especially if you don't have the apparatus, the mechanisms to do so. It's a gigantic problem. And when our attitude as a society, find one or two states in our society, but other states are going in this direction. When you punish people who lack these mechanisms, you ensure that they will never get out of poverty. To pull poor people out of swimming pools, to kick them out of the bleachers at a Rockies game, to tell them, no, you can't wear the normal underwear that everyone else wears. I mean, is this actually a strategy or is this just a mix of fear and animosity and a guarantee that the perpetuation of the problem will continue? And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi won the Manitoba Leaf Referendum. She's our producer. Managing producer Joel Meyer had a strong showing in the Hannibal, Missouri, mass hand raise. Executive producer Andy Bowers exceeded expectations in the bellwether Loma Linda, California casting of lots. Go and like us on Facebook, please. We're at Facebook.com slash gist. The Gist, first in your hearts third in the Yuba City self-sort of 1998, but that was before the no-take-back rule was passed. Thanks for listening.
0: I'm Gretchen Rubin, the host of Happier, and in the latest episode, you can learn why you should stop reading a book. Plus, you can take a fun know-yourself-better quiz to find out if you're an upholder, questioner obliger or rebel you can subscribe to happier at
2: itunes.com/panoply